Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to that passage we had read to us from Romans chapter 12. Uh, Romans chapter 12 marks part two, really, of the epistle of Paul to the Romans. And as we've seen, it begins by uh, rooting our Christian life in the great uh, doctrines of the faith that Paul has been expounding in the first 11 chapters, rooting us in God himself and in the dogmatic teaching of the church respecting God and God's dealings with us. And that's the background, that's the context of worship. We come to have our minds refreshed and our hearts renewed as we, as we bring our thoughts towards God. And it's in that context then that we offer up ourselves to God in worship, as he said, by not conforming to the world but being transformed by the renewing of our mind. In other words, the Christian life turns on the way in which in our intellect and in our mind, this is not a matter of education, by the way, this is something that applies to everybody, no matter what level of education they have, but it is a way of thinking that is informed by the Holy Scripture and that is acted upon by the Holy Spirit who is present in the life of the believer as the believer churns over in their mind the things that they're learning, as the believer hears the Word of God spoken to them, and as the believer seeks by receiving that Word into their mind to translate that into the way in which they live. And in the way in which the apostle works that, that whole movement from worship and the renewing of the mind and the transforming of life works itself out, first of all, in the church and in our relationship with one another in the church. So we don't come, as it were, as uh, remote entities and park ourselves in a pew and uh, sing our praises, say our prayers, hear the sermon, and disregard everybody around us. One of the things that is wonderful about communion when we celebrate communion is that we are gathered together as God's people. We look into each other's eyes. Sometimes we pass the plate to one another, or the elders pass the plate to us, and we're reminded that we're part of the body of Christ. And that's, that's absolutely vital. And the apostle, the apostle wants to give, give our, us to give our attention to the relationships we have with one another. That's why he begins by telling us not to think too highly of ourselves. If I think I'm important, then I'm not going to be any good to you. If you think you're important, you're not going to be any good to me. If I think for one moment, even although I'm a teaching elder, that all I have to contribute to your life is to what I tell you, then I've not understood what it is to be a member of the body of Christ. We're not to think of ourselves too highly than we ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned to us. 
Now, it's in that context, then, that Paul elaborates a little bit on the teaching of the church, and he begins with the unity of the church. He says that we are one body, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ. Now, he's using, he's using a metaphor here, isn't he? The metaphor of the body. We're, we're familiar with that metaphor because we all have bodies, except for the angels who are listening in. But all of us here in the room have bodies. We, we know how the body works. There's a brain that, that informs the rest of the body what to do, and there's a central net nervous system, and there's a heart pumping blood, and it gets down to all the capillaries there in, in the remote parts of our body. And uh, we, 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 we understand what we mean by the body. And, and you can't really imagine your body without bits, without parts that are missing, or with parts missing. Somebody loses a leg. My mother-in-law lost her leg uh, uh, due to diabetes. And uh, it was devastating for the rest of us. It, it, she took it in her stride, so to speak. Uh, that was perhaps not the, the right expression there. That's what happens when you talk off the, the cuff. But, uh, but seriously, she was, a, she was a, an example of resilience. And, uh, and in fact, with her with her uh, wooden bit or whatever it was that she had on here, she could get around as quickly or as fast as ever she did before. But it's, it's hard to imagine, isn't it? Losing a limb is, is a serious thing, and, uh, and we can only imagine how horrible that is. And so he's using this body metaphor, and he's using it of the church, and he's saying that we are one body in Christ. And that analogy teaches us these three truths— First of all, the unity of the church. There is one body. We, we know this and we believe this because every Sunday in life, in our church, we repeat the Apostles' Creed, there is one holy Catholic church. Or when we are, even when we have a, a little a break from the Apostles' Creed and we use the Nicene Creed, which is actually an official church creed, we say, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Jesus prayed for the unity of his church on earth. He prayed that his church would be united in life and in truth. Unity is not a goal. It's a reality. We are one body in Christ. Now, in what sense are we united in Christ? Well, first of all, it's an, it's an apostolic unity. That is, the truth that we believe is apostolic truth. We, we come to believe in Jesus through the message that the apostles teach us. If you read Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, you'll find that's precisely what Jesus says. He prays for all those who will believe in him through their, that is the apostles' testimony. And so it is that from the earliest days, the Christians in in Jerusalem, for example, in Acts chapter 2, gave attention to the apostles' teaching and to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. The apostles' teaching is the foundation, we're told by Paul in the Ephesians. It's the foundation on which the church of Jesus Christ is built. Because God, Jesus had promised to the apostles 
Number one, that the Holy Spirit, when He came, would lead them into all truth, that He would remind them of the things that Jesus had said and done, and that He would tell them things to come. And that was the test. That was the key in how, how books got into the Bible was, were they written by apostles or were they written with the authority of an apostle? And so we find them in there. One of the great, one of the great issues at the time of the Reformation was that uh, Rome's great concern at that time was to preserve the unity of Christendom around the, the allegiance to one bishop in the church, the bishop of Rome. Uh, the result of that was division in the church. The Protestant Reformation was not about everybody gaining their freedom and independence of thought. The Reformation was not about everybody able to follow their own Bible interpretation so that you have your interpretation, I have my interpretation, and I'm going to cling to my interpretation and you to yours. No. I'm not free to give you my interpretation unless my interpretation of Scripture falls into the Catholic and Reformed faith. That's how you can hold me to that. We're not free to go off down a little alleyway of our own and come up with our own ideas. We're not free to follow new ways of reading and teaching and interpreting God's Word. It's an apostolic church. And then secondly, it's an organic church. We are one body in Christ. Our life is eternal. It's found through our having a shared relationship with both the Father and the Son in the Holy Spirit. But some people have a kind of warped view of what church membership means. Membership here is not like membership in a club or a society. I mean, you can be a member of a club like a golf club or an amateur dramatic society, and as long as you pay your subscription, the offering, and so long as you keep the rules, for rules read church constitution, and so long as you show up with some regularity, then you're regarded as a good club member. According to one dictionary, a club is, quote, an association of persons united by some common interest, meeting periodically for cooperation or conviviality. That could describe many churches, I'm afraid, today. And that's how people see it. Some people, it's all about the Constitution. Some people, it's all about coming and meeting periodically for cooperation or for conviviality, just having a bit of a show and a bit of a fun time. No, the members of the church are not members of a club. They are members of a body. They are like the fingers and the hands and the wrists and the arms and the feet and the legs and the brain and the heart. This is an organic unity, an organic unity. We need to guard jealously the unity of the Spirit among you. What kind of things might, might threaten the unity of the body? Well, I think 
allowing denominational differences to keep us from seeing that we have fellowship with Jesus' people wherever Jesus' people are to be found. Now, we have a particular church. This is our particular church. This is where we worship. This is where we've made vows uh, to keep uh, to the faith once for all delivered to the saints and expressed fundamentally in Scripture, primarily in Scripture, and Scripture we have up here, and then secondarily in our, in our church's confession and catechisms. As members of the church, we vow to submit to one another, to the brethren within the body of Christ. As Paul says to the Ephesians, submit yourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. We make a vow to do that. We make a vow to preserve and defend the purity and the unity of the church and so on. But we also believe that there is one holy Catholic church, that the church of Jesus Christ is to be found all over the world, not just in our denomination, but wherever men and women have fellowship with Christ and participate in the life of Christ, even if we disagree in some minor matters. We all belong to the one church. Now, the things that divide us are important. Our forefathers as Presbyterians fought to keep bishops out of the church. In fact, there were wars in Scotland and England over the issue of bishops. It's a bit of an overreaction, you might think, but people felt passionately about it. The Apostle John warns us about believers who are out of fellowship with God because they're out of fellowship with other believers. You know, this can happen where I can ju- when I justify what is simply a personality clash between me and somebody else within the church, or where I ignore great areas of agreement and insist on majoring in minors. There are minor things. Some people get preoccupied with minor things, and it becomes a big thing in their head. We need to keep the the plain things, the main things. Or when I believe a slanderous innuendo or report about someone, and I take it and receive it and believe it and talk to other people about it without checking it out, Or when I refuse to admit that I've done wrong, or I justify myself and write off a sister whom I've stumbled by my insensitivity, and I I dismiss it by saying she is unstable anyway. In other words, unity is something to be fought for. And it's helpful for us to distinguish, isn't it, when we talk about one holy Catholic church, between the visible and the invisible church. The invisible church is the company of all those who've been chosen by God the Father, who have been redeemed by God the Son, who've been born again by God the Holy Spirit. As the Westminster Confession of Faith puts it, it it consists of the whole number of the elect who have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ the head. When the world looks on at the church, very often it sees divisions within churches like ours, or between churches, 
that are unnecessary divisions. I mean, there are doctrinal divisions which we should be able to disagree with one another and say that we disagree. These are the, these are the things we disagree on. We understand that, but we accept those differences, but we have fellowship in Christ. Thomas Manton said, divisions in the church breed atheism in the world. And that's a truism. Now, this, uh, this unity, the invisible church, transcends all the denominations because the elect are known only to God. John Stott uh, talks about the Trinity as the essential basis for church unity. He wrote this, There can only be one Christian family, only one Christian faith, hope, and baptism, only one Christian body because there is only one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You can no more multiply churches than you can multiply gods. There is only one God. If there's only one God, then there's only one church. Is the unity of the church inviolable? Then so is the, so is the unity uh, of, if the, is the unity of God inviolable, so then is the unity of the church. It's no more possible to split the church than it's possible to split the Godhead. We talk about the invisible church, we're talking about the bride of Christ, for whom he died. We're talking about all of the elect all over the world. But then there's a visible church. The visible church consists of both the elect and the non-elect. Those who are genuinely Christians and those who profess to be Christians. That was true of the church in the Old Testament. All who are descended from Abraham are not all Abraham's children. Jesus tells a story of the parable of the wheat and the weeds that grow together until harvest time, the day of judgment. It's a sad reality that every local church like ours is a mixed assembly. Every larger regional church, like the, church in Amer- the Presbyterian Church in America, is a mixed assembly. That's why you get people involved, sometimes even in leadership, who don't act Christianly. That's why Martin Luther says, the face of the church is the face of a sinner. But if you belong to Christ, it's important that you identify with the visible gathering of God's people on earth. So there's the unity of the church. Secondly, there's the plurality of the members. Look at this. There are many members. In other words, the church is not an individualistic thing. Christian life isn't individualistic. In the creeds, we use the word Catholic to stress this point. It means universal, broad, diverse, united. This church in Rome to whom Paul is writing was a multi-ethnic body. It drew together people from high and low, from the slave class to the ruling class, from various racial groups around the empire. But they belong to one church. The body has many members, says Paul. But we're reminded of the plurality of the body. Each member belongs to all the others. We are individually members one of another. And that's important. There's a sense in which you leave every other relationship at the door when you come to church. 
When you come to church, you come to worship as a member of the church. When my family came to church, my wife is here, but in church, she's another church member. My children would come to church, but in church, they're just other church members. And so at the door, I would shake their hands as they left as well, because I shook the hand of everybody who came to church. That's an important thing to remember. There's only one prophet, priest, and king of every family in this church, and that's Jesus Christ. When we come to church, we are individually members one of another. It's a vital thing to grasp. The plurality of the members. We belong to the church throughout all of time. We are, in fact, a dead people's society, or as I like to call it, a dead believer's society. Today, we stand on the shoulders of the church yesterday. We did not invent it in our lifetime. We cannot choose to ignore the creeds and confessions of the church through the ages. This church, our church, is answerable to the church at Pentecost, to the church at Nicaea, to the, to the church at, of, at Westminster, making, writing the Westminster Confession. We dare not be dismissive of our dead members who are alive with Christ. They belong to us. We belong to them in the unity of the church. And we dare not ignore our roots or our accountability to our brothers and sisters of yesterday, today, and tomorrow. That's why, by the way, the, the whole uh, impetus behind the retrieval movement within the Reformed world today and indeed throughout Christendom is to seek to find out how we're connected to the church fathers, to the, the medievalists, to the to the reformers, to the post-reformed, reformed orthodox, because we lost our way. The 20th century is a disaster for evangelicalism, spiritually speaking. And we need to recover something that we can learn from our previous brothers and sisters. We belong to the church throughout all time. We belong to the church in all places. Church is not a, an American institution. It's not a Western phenomenon. These people that say it's a white man's thing, well, most of, the, most of the Christians in the world today are not white. They're not, by a long shot. In fact, some survey was done recently and said that the typical church member in the world today is a black African woman. The numbers in Africa are overwhelming. And we belong to the church in all places. In the Belgic Confession, it says this, and the Belgic Confession was written in 1563. It says, all people are obliged to join and unite with the church, keeping the unity of the church. So maybe you haven't joined the church yet. You don't know why you haven't joined the church. Maybe you think it's a club and you don't want to join the club. But there's a sense of which we have to belong. We have to say we belong. We have to come and, and commit ourselves. It's like marriage. You, you make vows 
And within the family, becoming a member is like a marriage of sorts. You become part of the bride of Christ. And then the third thing that the passage talks about is the variety of gifts. Within the church, we have different gifts. We're not all the same. There's unity, but not uniformity. How boring it would be if we were all the same. Paul asks you to contemplate two realities at the same time in verse 4. He, he asks you to remember that we're all part of one body, but also to remember that we are not all the same. Just as we have many members in one body, all the members do not have the same function. I have found that my toes are not very good at using scissors. Not all our members have the same function. The Apostle Paul says, and I want you to understand that we are one, but we do not share the same function. Unity does not mean sameness. Unity does not mean interchangeability. One size does not fit all in the kingdom of God. There are different gifts. And Paul stresses this in verse 4. All members do not have the same function. Verse 6, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Differing gifts to the body. And these gifts are down, do you notice, to the Westminster, uh, to the to the grace of God. Some people, and I've seen this in churches, engage in what I call gift projection. Some people are in, really into foreign missions, for example. And they are a gift to the church because they have such a commitment to foreign missions and to spreading the influence of foreign missions within the church, reminding us all the time. And that's a good thing for the church. But imagine that person projects onto you that you should feel as much about foreign missions as they do. That's gift projection. If I, as, as your pastor, project onto you that you should know the Bible and you should know, you should know theology as well as I do, that would be gift projection. And so it goes on. We can expect from other people that which is not their function within the body of Christ. God gives you the passion that you have. God gives you the gifts you have. Receive them. For here's the deal. As the Westminster Confession speaks of it, saints have communion in each other's gifts and graces. I get a buzz out of seeing the difference within the body of Christ. The different strengths that people have within the body of Christ, the passions that people have within the body of Christ, it gives me a buzz to see that because it's such a wonderful thing to realize that God has blessed each of us in different ways for different purposes. And we shouldn't try to get somebody and press them into my mold or you press somebody into your mold. We don't want people to be like that. We have communion in each other's gifts and graces. They make us stronger. The very differences make us stronger as we seek to glorify Christ. So as I see it, using my gifts and receiving the ministry of your gifts towards me 
is part of my, our response to the mercy of God that's talked about in verse 1. This is a practical way of offering our body to God as a living sacrifice. We do it in worship, and then we do it practically towards one another within the church. And we exercise our gifts in humility. We don't think we're above others because our gift is more public or whatever it may be. We don't think like that. But our gifts are not for ourselves alone. They are for the body of Christ. We belong to one another. I used to love reading The Three Musketeers. I read the book by Alexander Dumas several times as a boy. And I like that phrase, one for all and all for one. In many ways, that's what it is to be part of the body of Christ. I think in these days, coming out of the, the uh, testing during the pandemic, the pandemic tested our love for one another. The pandemic tested our tolerance for each other. The, pan- the pandemic tested our fellowship because we didn't see each other for a long time. And yet, I think in the providence of God that coming out of that, we're not out of it yet, of course, but coming out of that, I think that we're going to find that what we want as Christian people is what the Apostle Paul is describing here. It is providence that we are studying this, that he wants us to be more engaged with each other, He wants us to be more of a family. He wants us to be more hospitable to each other using the gift of hospitality. He he wants us to be more loving towards one another, more interested in one another, serving one another in love within the body. I think that's where he's taking us. We're fewer in number, but I think under God, we can be stronger and stronger together in Christ. May that be so and may that be our prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the wonder of your church. We, we love her. We love the church of Jesus Christ. We love our church here. We love each other. We look around this room. The people we know, some people we know better than others, We pray, Lord, that all of us would find ourselves increasingly wedded to each other in our hearts and in our minds. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.